Hey there, and welcome to the Pseudo Show, brought to you by the Destination Linux Network. Today, we introduce you to a company called Tidelift. We discuss open source, securing code, and their unique take on paying developers. All that and more on this episode of the Pseudo Show. Welcome to the Pseudo Show, your home for all things enterprise open source. I'm Eric, the IT guy. Over the course of our show, we've discussed how to provide funding to developers and critical projects in the open source world. A number of models exist like Patreon or companies like SUSE and Red Hat who hire and fund key projects. There's another model, though, that we've seen on the rise, subscriptions, and not the subscription model you may be used to. Enter Tidelift, a company with a true passion for open source. Their mission is to be a complete solution for managing, securing, and maintaining the health of your open source supply chain. To better understand that purpose and how it affects the open source community, and especially the enterprise, Brent and I sat down with several members of the Tidelift team. Today, we share that interview with you. But before we do, it would not be possible to share these interviews without the support of our amazing sponsors. Pseudo Show has two amazing sponsors that have been here with us pretty much since day one. First is DigitalOcean. DigitalOcean offers the simplest, most developer-friendly cloud platform. You can get started on DigitalOcean for free with a $100 credit by going to do.co slash DLN. DigitalOcean is your one-stop shop to deploy, scale, store, secure, and monitor your infrastructure and applications. DigitalOcean offers managed Kubernetes instances with just a few clicks. Simply select the size and location of your workers and away you go. Need fast, reliable servers? Not a problem. DO offers flexible compute options like CPU or memory-optimized instances. DigitalOcean has a vast marketplace with one-click deploy apps ranging from WordPress to LAMP or Docker. Finally, DO is home to the app platform. Let DigitalOcean manage your infrastructure, app libraries, and dependencies, leaving you free to focus on developing and growing your application and your business. These are just a few of the services and features that we love so much about DigitalOcean. Not entirely convinced? Then try their services for yourself by going to do.co slash DLN. You can create an account and receive a $100 free credit, good for two months. But what's better than using DigitalOcean to manage your entire infrastructure and application needs? Deploying your application on DigitalOcean while storing all of your passwords and secrets inside a secure, open-source password manager. A password manager like Bitwarden. Bitwarden is the easiest and safest way for individuals, teams, and business organizations to store, share, and sync sensitive data. You can get started today for free by going to bitwarden.com DLN. Bitwarden is the choice of the pseudo show for securing our passwords and those of our families. Bitwarden offers end-to-end -end encryption, so your data is protected before it even leaves your device. Bitwarden's source code is open source. That way you can take comfort that their infrastructure, features, and code are vetted and approved by a global community. Bitwarden is available globally in 40 different languages and on multiple platforms from mobile to native and browser plugins. You can get started for free. And when you see what an amazing platform Bitwarden is, you'll want to upgrade to the premium plan for just $10 a year. That's less than a dollar a month. Head on over to bitwarden.com slash DLN to get started today for free. Without the support of our sponsors, Pseudo Show wouldn't be able to bring you the quality content we do week in and week out. So from Brandon, myself, and the entire Pseudo Show team, a sincere thank you to our sponsors for making this all possible. The third and probably nerdiest way you can support the show is to get some swag. Who doesn't love a good nerd t-shirt? We're getting your coffee on with the Pseudo Show mug. You can see the entire Pseudo Show collection as well as our sister shows on Destination Linux Network by going to pseudo.show slash swag. Now, on to the interview. A few years ago, while I was attending a Linux conference, in the vendor hall was a booth talking about making money while writing open source code and announcing safer ways for companies to utilize open source. 
I spent some time at this booth and got to know a passionate organization determined to help ensure open source developers not only had the resources they need uh, to succeed, but even got paid for their work. Crazy, right? <laughs> well, today we are joined by Tidelift, a company set on a mission to create a living for developers while ensuring that companies have safe, up-to-date code to drive their businesses forward. So before we get started, I did want to say that y'all now hold the record for most number of guests we've had on a single episode. So without further ado, welcome to the Pseudo Show. So why don't we go around the, the proverbial room here and uh, you each take a minute to introduce yourselves, your role at Tidelift, and maybe an open source project that uh, you're particularly excited about. Sure. So I'm Louis Villa. I'm one of the co-founders of Tidelift. I am a recovering programmer turned lawyer. And so at, at Tidelift, I wear too many hats. I'm I'm the legal team. I am most of the HR team, as, I, uh, as well as our lovely recruiter, amazing recruiter, Jen. And uh, I am the head of what we call Lifter Engagement and Success, which is the folks who work with the maintainers that, as you mentioned, in the lead-in, we like to to pay. And I'm I think open source projects, boy, I've been uh, involved with so many over the years. I still have a very soft spot for GNOME. Pandoc is actually my like weapon of choice, though, these days for most, you know, the thing that I actually use or wield too much, probably. I'm Jeremy Katz. I'm also one of the co-founders. There are actually four co-founders, but you don't get all of us today. I am the head of our engineering. I'm not a recovering programmer, but I'm a reluctant people person. And the, you know, I have a team of engineers working with me now <laughs> um, and continues to surprise me every day that I'm a people person. So yeah, so, you know, kind of interesting favorite open source project. I mean, you know, I, I spent a lot of time at Red Hat working on a bunch of infrastructure stuff. And then largely I'm still an infrastructure geek at heart. So I've actually been really watching closely and really looking for time to sit down and play with a lot of the stuff that's coming out to do virtualization on the new ARM-based Macs, some of the stuff that's using their virtualization kit and building on top of that to almost end up with a Windows subsystem for Linux-esque thing, but for Macs, which seems kind of interesting. Yeah, we, we actually get a lot of questions around uh, ARM and Mac, actually just ARM in general. But uh, anyway, let me take my Red Hat sales hat off and put on my my uh, podcasting hat but uh, actually your your intro made me think of uh, of that scene from office space where i have people skills apparently <laughs> like i said i continue to be surprised by this i think both of us are old school nerds enough that discovering that we actually like other human beings is still somewhat of a surprise in our lives so yeah i i treated myself on my 30th birthday to lasik but my mental still self-image still has these gigantic, thick, you know, plastic, fake tortoise uh, glasses that I wore throughout, you know, elementary and middle and high and college and so on and so forth. So, yeah, you know, I mean, we uh, look, part of why we started this company, and again, to much to the surprise of my mother, my mother's, you know, the reason that you're really terrible with names is because you don't like people. And <laughs> thanks, mom. <laughs> And the thing is, is actually I find myself really, really, really liking people, which, again, a surprise to me as I grew up. And as somebody who was in who's been in open source, I mean, both Jeremy and I, since shortly before the phrase open source was actually coined, it's the people, right? The kids, you know, I mean, any particular technology is very cool, right? Like Pandoc is sort of amazing, deep wizardry. Uh, some of the I've gotten a little bit into like 
playing with CSVs lately, and it's just a pile of really cool command line tools these days to to play with data and visualize data. And all that stuff is really awesome. But the people who do it are what make it, you know, different, right, in a meaningful sense from from what came before. And so, yeah, you know, uh, one of our one of our other co-founders, Havoc, called me up. It's like, you know, sort of ran me through the like, well, we've got this idea. And, you know, do you think it's right? Do you think it's ready? And I was like, sign me up. Um, you know, I'm in. Uh, and it was exactly because of that building infrastructure for people. Yeah. And as Jeremy says, a little bit of surprise that we've discovered we're both people, people as we grow up. But what are you going to do? So let's dive into that a little bit. Let's let's unpack that. What what was that moment? Was there was there an event or was there, you know, back in the day when we had conferences where the four of you just sitting around a table talking? What gave you the idea for the need for an an entity like Tidelift? So there wasn't an event at the time that we start. I mean, we've been a remote company since the beginning. Donald and myself are both in the Boston area, Havoc's down in Asheville, and Lewis was in San Francisco and still is. Donald and Havoc had worked together a few times since when they were both at Red Hat together. Donald and I kept in touch. You know, Donald was like, hey, let's have lunch. And I was like, sure, why not? Let's have lunch. So I met Donald for lunch and, you know, he kind of started to outline and he's like, you know, there's all of this open source. There's so many open source developers. There's a like sustainability problem here. Like they, I, I tell people when I'm, you know, pitching new engineers joining the team, like you work on an open source project and what you get for it is GitHub issues and complaints on Twitter. Like that's what you get for writing an open source project, especially if it becomes popular. Certainly we could do better than that. There's gotta be a way to do better. And at that point, I also was kind of in the, you know, I was starting to think about leaving Google and trying to figure out what I wanted to do next. And it was just like, huh, this is a really interesting idea. Can we find a way to both help open source maintainers get paid for all of the hard work they're doing and also do it in a way that brings more value to the businesses that are all building on top of open source. And so for me, it was, you know, we had lunch and then I spent a weekend where that was basically all I thought about was like, could we make this work? And came back with, yeah, we can. And then I was like, Donald, you're going to San Francisco next week. You should talk to Lewis and see if he thinks we're crazy. Yeah. And Havoc at that point had already called me and given some of the, I mean, Havoc and I have known each other since we were both heavily involved in GNOME in the early 2000s. And Jeremy and I uh, were at uh, Linux user groups down the street from each other at NC State and at Duke. And his Linux user group actually installed software and my Linux user group drank. And so... And I do both. Yeah, I mean, you can do... We actually had a really cool and fun... One of the first virtual... You know, again, I was talking about the people, right? Uh, we had a great mailing list. So, like, Jeremy was active on the mailing list, and then we had an IRC channel. And, you know, a lot of people on that IRC channel are still lifelong friends, right? Uh, including Jeremy and I. And so Havoc and I knew each other through GNOME, and Jeremy and I through that. And, and Havoc had called me up, and he sort of ran me through the... He'd been brainstorming some with Donald, and he ran me through the idea. And at the time, I had left the Wikimedia Foundation about a year before, and I was doing solo lawyering, right? I was advising a lot of different size companies on their open source strategies. And the most frustrating conversation that I always had was, oh, yeah, we started doing this open source thing, and it's not really working for us. And we took VC money. And, you know, our VCs are asking us, where's the return on investment? What can I do to make this 
less open source, right? I mean, at the end of the day, that was sort of this unfortunate and frustrating discussion. I mean, they always start, they never started with how do we make this less open source? They started with how do we make money and still have it be open source? And you'd say, eh, I'm not sure I have a great answer to that, to your question there, right? And so when Havoc called me up, the conversation finished with Havoc saying, so do you think the time is ripe for this, right? Because none of this, like at some level, there's nothing that we're doing that couldn't have been done 20 years ago, right? But at another level, the the industry wasn't ready to accept the need for it, right? And I think developers were very much still, including me, right? Like I've definitely written, if you go back through my blog, you'll find some pretty old posts about Oh, not real sure about the role of money in open source, right? And it's still that is still a complicated area, right? But I think a lot more people are more you know, much more open now than than they would have been 10 or 20 years ago to the idea of how do we actually thread the money into the existing system in a way that works and makes sense. Another piece of that I think just is open source is everywhere now. Like no one can deny it. Yeah. I, it kind of goes to another question that I had, but I'll get to that one in a minute. But like this model, like this is probably, I'm going to argue the first new model to monetize open source that since uh, Red Hat and SUSE created their subscription models, right? And also the open core, like what, what were your lessons learned that you took from working at Red Hat? I know. Some of your team used to work at Novell, you know, based on those backgrounds, seeing those models and all the other models that have come and gone, like they're like the only two standing mo- from the, from back then are Red Hat and Suso. What lessons learned have you taken from, from the other models that have come and gone to help you, help you build this model? You know, I think for me, one thing that has really jumped out is that the successful models go with the flow of open source by reducing friction, right? Because the temptation when you're a business uh, who's trying to make money off of open source is, oh, I'll increase friction, right? I'll somehow control this one part of the stack, or I will charge for this one little bit of whatever. And if you do that, uh, and I think part of why a lot of past open uh, attempts at monetizing open source have failed is because they've really leaned into that friction, right? They've they've added friction. And that was hard enough to do when your average app was built on 10 or 20 open source libraries, right? When your Hello World now has 700 or 1,000 open source libraries, if you increase friction, you're toast, right? And so you really have to lean into, you know, the Red Hat model. And I would say the one other business model that I think has been reasonably successful around open source is that sort of paired SaaS model, right? Where there's like a, you know, we give it to you for free, but by the way, we will run it for you, right? Like WordPress.com, for example, right? And which I'm finally in the process of transferring my last WordPress open source version installation to WordPress.com because look, it's 2021 and I've got a four-year-old and I don't need a, you know, a 10-year-old older brother that's like my WordPress install, right? That's been like slowly (laughs) upgraded for that long. (laughs) And so you reduce the friction and figure out some way to turn that reduced friction into money rather than 
the other way around, right? And the SaaS model is very much, you know, the WordPress SaaS model, and, there, and there's several others, but that's the one that I was literally writing a check to the other day. That reduced friction can help you succeed, right? And so for us, part of what we're doing is for for your listeners who aren't so who aren't so conversant with our model, in some sense, you can think of our model as well. You could write if you're a big enterprise that is using a thousand open source libraries, you could take the time to write a contract and send a check to each one of those thousand open source libraries every month, right? Or we find out those thousand libraries, and of course, there's many more because we have more than one customer, and so we, you know, we take care of all that. And we and you send us one check, and we figure out the divvying and the sending it out. Uh, and so that is uh, that's a friction reducer, right? Like that takes something that was sort of high pain because either it wasn't supported at all, or you were doing these sort of weird one-off things of contracting and things like that. And the flip side for developers too, right? Where you could try to figure out who your thousand users are, or you let our sales team do that, figure out who your thousand users are, and we'll extract the money from them with our our sales team and our legal team and you know and again we'll distribute that to you so yeah that's that for me is the friction is the lesson but i'm sure jeremy has something yeah it's going to actually go a slightly different direction which is good which is enterprise sales is hard like tell me about it the, <laughs> like you know who, who are the people with the deepest pockets that are willing to pay the most to sort of understand and really care about this stuff it's big enterprises. Selling to big enterprises, you're doing a number of discussions. You know, they used to be in person. They're now all calls, obviously. You know, really helping them to understand how you solve their problem. And so you help them to understand that. And then you talk to one person from that company, then it's five people, then it's 10, then it's 25. And I'm a developer. I don't want to be going out and having to do that and have that conversation, not just once, but five to like so many times. You just told us you're a people person, Jeremy. Well, you can't. I was I, literally <laughs> about to say that. It's a different kind of people. Like. <laughs> so that's actually a funny, a, a funny change that I made just a couple of years ago from being a systems administrator to now I work in in sales, and I love those conversations. I love coming in with with a assuming the demo gods are on my side. I love coming in with with a presentation, you know, our latest features and and showing that group of people, you know, hopefully giving them lunch and saying, look. Look what we can do! Isn't isn't this isn't this shiny and new? I want to kind of pause for just a second because we do have a number of of folks in our audience that do work in big enterprise, and I want to get your all's take. I mean, I've, I want to get your all's take on how much just a general enterprise scale application really depends on open source. When you look at the the libraries, the runtimes, how much of what people are are deploying as as an application is dependent upon open source these days. So I'll go with the party the party line of we did a survey. <laughs> you know, we did a survey and the number that we found was 92% of applications have open source components. We're not the only ones that have done a survey like this, you know. There was another one that said 91%, there was another that said 94. My own personal answer is that actually, you know, it's 92% of people who responded say that. That means there's probably like three to four percent of people that don't know and a couple percent that are just lying like they just don't want to admit it and then okay there's the like 0.1 percent that's still using some commercial cobol thing but 
I don't know how you build a modern application without open source. Like, what are you building on at that point that's sort of current technology? Yeah, this is, you know, the plural of anecdote is not data. But here's my anecdote from from when I was in solo practice. I I was advising a company, uh, a client on an acquisition. And the reason I was called in for these acquisitions is because, of course, there's an open source component right? Like they're buying the company and they want to know, is the open source, you know, being dealt with legally? Is there any mess that might come up? Right. And so I, I contact the client. I know this acquisition is going on. The, the client has told me like, yeah, acquisition is going on. Be ready. We're going to get you the list of open source to look at any day now. Week passes. Oh, where's the list of open source? You know, we don't have it yet. Week passes. Where's the list? Week passes. They tell us they don't use any open source. And you know, at that point, like the deal almost grinds to a halt because like, you know, this is what, this was 2017, 2018. And like, everyone is basically like, maybe we are buying idiots because maybe <laughs> like if they don't think they're using open source, maybe they have no idea what they're doing. Right. Like, which is the only way, like, you know, open source is not, I've never seen open source actually kill a deal like this. Because the problems are basically always solvable. It's usually you want to know about them beforehand, right? Because like you want to, you know, you want to understand like does this affect the price of the deal? Does this? But but it rarely, rarely. I've heard stories of it killing a deal, but I've never until this one never seen it actually potentially kill a deal. But it wasn't because they'd done something bad. It was just this sense of like, well, if they don't, and it turns out it was actually a pretty interesting and sort of unusual situation. Won't bore you with the details, but it was actually not, it, it, it actually turned out that they were not complete idiots, but like it sent up such a red flag that they kept saying, no, 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 we don't, we don't use any open source. We don't use any open source. Like that was just like everyone involved was like, maybe these people really don't know what they're doing. Maybe this is all a giant mistake. So like, you know, that's my answer is anybody who tells you they're not, you know, obviously things are going to vary, right? Like if you're a state government and as we all learned this year, unemployment systems are all still COBOL. Like maybe there's not a lot of open source there, but like the website still has some open source JavaScript in it, right? So, you know, I mean, maybe, so maybe that's smaller than most, but I mean, the numbers, the numbers are huge, right? And they're unavoidable because why would you, what kind of like the cost of re-implementing all this stuff from scratch would just be, it wouldn't make any sense, right? Yeah, it'd be, that's insane for sure. Part of this, you know, of your model is helping enterprises secure their open source supply chain of sorts. We've recently heard about supply chain attacks like with SolarWinds. How has that impacted Tidelift in your business? Like, has it increased your you know, queries? Like, how, how can you help me secure the supply chain? Or has it done anything at all? SolarWinds? I don't. Uh, no, I'm kidding. Uh, I mean, yeah, no, we hear about we hear about it all the time, right? I mean, yeah, this is one of these things where, in some ways, you can think of our model as like taking the things that developers know they should really should do, but is it the last thing you want to do on a Saturday night before you shut down your IDE and go off and you know, pet your dog or feed your baby or whatever, right? Like, you know, so licensing, for example, something that every developer, yeah, I guess I shouldn't, but do they actually care about the licensing? Vanishingly few, right? And similarly, the supply chain stuff, you know, is something that 
crossing the T's and dotting the I's is sometimes developers a thing that some developers don't know as much about as they should, or they don't, you know, do I really need to 2FA on this account is such a pain in the neck, right? And so, you know, we've been talking from the beginning of the company about how we can use our model to help encourage some of those good behaviors, right? So like we work with maintainers to make sure 2FA is turned on, you know, we're, we're constantly looking at various ways that we can help secure the supply chain, right? And, it, and it's, yeah, so there's a lot of interest in that from customers and it dovetails well with our, with our model. And I would say it didn't go from zero to, I don't know, whatever number you want to use that's high now. Um, <laughs> <laughs> it went from, we were hearing it somewhat regularly, but now we're hearing it almost from everybody. Like that's been kind of the shift is that like it was a thing that sort of sophisticated, you know, people were already starting to think about. So, you know, that's why we had already done some of the things like working to make sure that two factors on, oh, hey, we work with the maintainer so the maintainer can verify, yes, this is a real release of this piece of software. I think there's actually a lot more that we also want to be able to do. Like we actually have a bunch of ideas of, you know, more things we can build into the product to make this even stronger. but. There's only 168 hours a week, so. Yeah. Well, you know, CVE assistance is another one that we've done from very early on, right? One of the things, yeah, it's been really interesting to me. One of the fun parts of this journey has been talking to, to developers, uh, maintainers about what are the things, what are their pain points, right? And some of them, like Jeremy and I and Havoc, we've all done this long enough that some of them were like, yep, okay, that confirms our priors, right? Like we knew exactly what was coming. But one of the, one of the sort of, I don't want to say silly little things, right? But one is that a lot of developers, when you ask them about security stuff, they're like, I know what CVEs are, but like the actual process for filing and dealing with a CVE, I've never done. It's sort of intimidating. And so we simply set up a like default security reporting policy that you could use. You didn't have to, we didn't require you to use our policy, but you you know, put one in place and allowed maintainers to say the first contact can be us for, and then we would turn around and help them put the CV together and get it. So most of what we do is the flip side of that, right? The CV comes in through some other way and, you know, we just help get that information out, get, make sure patches are applied, things like that. But we can also help the other way around, right? Because that was something that in retrospect, once developers started saying, oh, the CV process is intimidating. Uh, it was like, oh, right. Yeah. Duh, of course it's intimidating this it's a you know who wouldn't be intimidated by it but it just wasn't something that had necessarily crossed her mind i know we have in our audience a handful of maintainers of various libraries some projects and like if they're interested in this like how does the process work how, how does a, a maintainer get onboarded onto tide lift it's a pretty straightforward process. I mean, you either reach out to us, lifters at tidelift.com, or, you know, ping me on Twitter. I'm Lewis underscore in underscore brief. So I actually went to law school with the poor guy who was Lewis in brief without underscores. I accidentally stole his domain, his, his Twitter handle. But yeah, you reach out to us, or you can check the website, you can actually search for your package to see if it has revenue attached right? Because we distribute the revenue based on our what, what our customers are actually using. So you can go to our website, search on the website and say, hey, you know, oh, it looks like I could earn 100 bucks a month, 500 bucks a month or whatever. And you reach out to us, you sign up, you sign a, a simple contract that says, hey, I will keep doing these, I will do these things and I will keep doing these things until you stop paying me. Or if I stop doing them, you can stop paying me, right? And then we set you up with an account on our system and it 
basically tells you what are the basic tasks that you need to do, right? And we're updating and changing those tasks all the time. So for example, we had provided an API that allowed you to put release notes into the system, right? Which we were then collating and giving to customers. And we discovered that actually customers were not as interested in that as we thought. And it was a bit of a pain in the neck for the developers. So we we turned that off the other day, right? You know, flip side, we've already mentioned 2FA, uh, you have to turn that on. You know, we're trying to require people to do things that are not particularly onerous, but maybe more on the boring side, right? Like the the things that, like, no developer should look at this list and be like, that's horrible. Why are they asking me to do this? Instead, it's more like, oh, yeah, I probably should be doing that anyway, is sort of, in some sense, the goal of that list, right? Yeah, and then you just get a regular update from us that's like, hey, you know, it's the end of the month, you've got to do one or two things, or we noticed you did a new release, and the, like, guess what, we are we automatically checked and the new release already does everything, so it's fine, you don't have to do anything new, right? I mean, ideally, there's some initial startup, you know, most of the things should not require too much effort on a per release basis. Though, so, you know, it's going to depend a little bit on various factors, but. I think it's just worth pointing out. So the focus right now is on application libraries. So things that somebody might be building into an application, whether it's a JavaScript package, a Ruby gem, a Python package, a Maven package, as opposed to an application somebody might run on their own. So we're much more focused on kind of the libraries than than the things somebody might run. Yeah, I mean, like one of our first conversations, just because I had just left Wikimedia, was some of the media wiki folks were like, hey, I would, and we're like, it's not, you know, one thing that I think has been a really driven home for me through this process is how vast of a gap there is between, there's like low level stuff that is really well known, you know, the actual kernel, MySQL, there's a bunch of administrative or DevOpsy, right? Like Kubernetes, that kind of stuff. But then there's a whole huge portion of the stack that every CTO uses and no CTO can name. You know, in some sense, that is where we are strongest, right? Because our way of apportioning the money makes sure that it's all, you can almost think of it as a way to, if you're the CTO, that you'd never want to hear about that, right? Because if you hear about one of those libraries in the middle, almost certainly it's a supply chain attack or it's some, you know, somebody has added a Bitcoin miner or I guess they're going to be <laughs> minting NFTs this week. Like, I don't know that that's going to be the new. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, so if you ever hear about that as a CTO, it's too late, right? The problem has already happened. And so we are not just an insurance policy, but actually proactively solving these problems so that maintainers don't just get burnt out and give it to some random rando on the internet who turns out to be an NFT producer. Um, now, now I need to like, I want to like tweet this idea that I, you know, we're going to like uh, hack, NFT hacking. It's going to be the next big thing, guys. You heard it here first. Right. Yeah. It's a feature. It's a feature. You know, from a library perspective, like, like uh, who would be one of your top, libraries that, that you're working with, like from a maintainer perspective, it's probably a project we may or may not have heard of, but like, if that's the thing you can disclose. I mean, sure. Well, we have a bunch of them on our website, you know, but I think uh, some good examples, right, are uh, we work with the Vue.js team to help fund some of their work. Uh, they're on the more high profile end, right? Like they are something actually that a CTO may have heard of and they have a variety of funding streams, which I think is one of the things, you know, your listeners who are considering this we see ourselves as one pillar of a, you know, I mean, we would love in the long run 
for you know folks to be able to have full-time jobs. Uh, CEO likes to occasionally say the magic word Lamborghini. I don't like to throw that one around as much, but like uh, you know, we'd love. Teslas. Develop- Teslas. Teslas, right, yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. The correct answer is a really nice e-bike. Yeah, I mean, so that's like at the higher end, right? And and it's critical. We get asked this all the time. Like, can I only do Tidelift? No. If you want to do open collective, you want to do consulting, right? Like one of the nice things that some of our lifters do is that this is, you know, a sort of base, the, the horrible thing about consulting, right? Or for Or some of the earlier stuff around bounties for features. Right. Like that was an idea early on in open source. There was this idea that you get paid a bounty for a feature. The problem is that's not smooth income. Right. Okay, January, I paid my rent because somebody wanted to bounty this one feature. What about February? Right. If there's no new feature that somebody needs in February, I'm in trouble. Right. So a steady job sounds great. Right. And we would love to be that bottom layer of your rent is paid every month through Tidelift. And then if somebody wants to pay you to add a new feature or pay you to consult on their deployment of your thing, great, right? But then in the lean months, you've still got Tidelift as this like base, which allows you to take risks, take initiative, right? Because again, one of the things that's scary about consulting, and I was there when I was a solo attorney, is where's that next when this one project is finished? You know, And, and Tidelift can be that complement. So we definitely don't wouldn't be in keeping with the spirit of what we're doing, uh, or obviously make economic sense if we were to say, oh, no, you can't do these other, you can't do other things. But that doesn't actually answer the question you asked. I got sidetracked, and now I don't remember <laughs> what the question was. No, it, just like, uh, you know, the, just that high-profile project. Oh, oh, right. Yeah. Well, and a different example, which I think is, is not a project, it's a person, is Ferros, who has, you know, several hundred who has several hundred JavaScript libraries that any individual one of which I I certainly can't name any off the top of my head. I probably should, but there you know, but there there's tons of them, right? And that's one of the ways that it works. And so, and I've got one other example for you. And so that is something that it wouldn't make sense. There's no way you form a company around any one of those things, right? You're not gonna the Linux Foundation is not gonna spin up a like there's one that's like is equals, I think. Right. You know, there's not going to be a Linux Foundation project spun up for that. A CTO is not going to pay you to write it. But yet at the same time, it needs to be maintained. It needs to not be abandonware. Uh, Like even if the maintainership is simply, I promise if something breaks really bad, I'll fix it. And and so by bundling that together, again, it's a really great example of the other thing we do is we work some with some of the various another good example of, of a category of things we do. We work with the Python Software Foundation, we work with Ruby together, and they work with their volunteers and their staff, uh, a mix of those, to do some of support some of the core things that our customers use. Makes sense. Good. That's awesome. You brought up licensing earlier. In terms of licensing, is there any restrictions? That something that Tidelift won't t- won't won't bring in is it like OSS friendly or is like other licenses just basically out? So this is a, it's a really interesting question actually, and I think it's a there's two. If I can give you the long answer, because mm-hmm. uh, because I I will. Did you see the lawyer's eyes light up when you when yeah. you asked that question? Yeah. <laughs> you know, well, and I was actually just having a great conversation about this yesterday, where I really. It really helped me understand something that that we've been doing unconsciously. But here's the thing: this is your project. We are not going to get in the way, right? You have autonomy on how to do that. Of course, the tension is 
if none of our customers are using it because it's a license they all hate, we're not going to prohibit you from using it. We're just not going to pay you, right? Like you get paid based on usage. And if your usage is zero, your, your income from it is zero, right? And so that's a, you know, that that's sort of the hard reality. Now, of course, we can help, you know, I think some of the things that we can do are things like in the contract, we you do agree that you won't sue one of our customers for a violation, essentially without talking to us first. Right. Because so many of the lawsuits and violations are actually just misunderstandings. Right. There's somebody screwed, screwed something up so it didn't get included in the bill of materials or, you know, and so for something like some of these new commercial licenses, that's different. Right. Like that's not you're not going to sue somebody over that over a misunderstanding. You're that's like part of your revenue model. Unlikely that our customers would, you know, it would be an unlikely match, right? So we wouldn't ban, we we won't ban it. We just don't expect, and we've never been asked. You know, I mean, the more interesting cases like the ethical license stuff, right? Again, where it's not going to be approved by the open source initiative. It's not in a in the strict sense of the word open source. But you know, we don't have an objection to that. Unfortunately, probably a lot of our customers do. That's that is a reality of modern capitalism that I suspect there are other podcasts that we probably want to discuss that one on. So kind of pivot a little bit. Earlier this year, Tidelift announced a new offering, uh, which I, I think really kind of helps bring a lot of what you do together and in, into an easier to digest package for for your customers. And that that offering is catalogs. So would you like to talk about how catalogs came to be and and how they help out your customers? Yeah. One of the things that I think we really saw is that, especially in these large organizations, you want to have, this is the set of software that we know is being used across the organization that we've looked at, we've thought about, and have approved. Everybody wants that at the end of the day. The thing that kind of is also true is doing that's a lot of work. It's just not easy to kind of get from oh, hey, we're going to go and build a web app that does, you know, whatever function we need because to understanding what are the right pieces of software to use, how do we know what's being used, how does it evolve over time, and how do we make sure that, you know, I have 5, 10, 100 different development teams that are probably not in the same location, may not be in the same time zone, quite possibly never talk to each other, how do we help them all pick sort of the same things? And so that was sort of the thing that, you know, the more we talked to these big enterprises, the came clearer and clearer that like they needed a way to pick what those are. Also, every single one of them is different. So everybody has their own reason for picking the things they want. And they're not bad reasons. Like that's one of the great things about open source is that there are a variety of different things that you can use. And so they didn't want to have the you know, the only things I can use are this single Java application. You know, I just want to build Spring. You know, not everybody wants to do that. And so kind of going out and just having the, all right, just have Spring isn't good enough. Everybody has to be able to curate their own. And so those kind of came together with the, all right, how do we kind of help these organizations curate their own catalogs, their own collections of open source software? It started really, you know, the more we, the, the further we got into thinking about it and the more we've done, like it rhymes to me with a Linux distribution. There are multiple Linux distributions out there. 
And I think one of the things that we're increasingly seeing is people move to, you know, move their environments to be in the cloud. They want to move more quickly. Every organization has their slightly different take on what they wish was in the Linux distribution. And, you know, how can we help these organizations basically build up what is the set of stuff for their applications? Let's ignore the distribution and just sort of focus on the application stack. And that's really what we can do now is that, you know, I'm an organization. I can basically pick and choose and have easy paths for developers to request adding new things because there's always new software coming out. There's always new releases. We can have an easy way to let people know, oh, hey, there's a vulnerability. Let the pe- the teams that are using it know what to do with it. Because there are a lot of times the answer is, you know what, there actually isn't anything you need to do with it. This is not a vulnerability that in practice is actually meaningful. So why have all 20 of our development teams figure that out? Let's look at it once and then tell them that. And so that's been really powerful. How are those catalogs created? Are they solution-based? Like this is the catalog you want to choose for an e-commerce site? Or are they based on industry? How, how, how are those broken down? So we've actually mostly let customers start by building their own catalog. So start with your applications. What do you use today? It turns out these organizations already have built a lot of software. They're not starting from zero. Right. <laughs> so it's it's more like it's more like when I go to Amazon or Newegg and I find the thing I want and then the next section down is you might also like this 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 and this. Yeah. Gotcha. Yeah, and it it's a lot also of kind of the evolution over time because you start with something today and then okay, let's set up what are the you know, you have implicitly if not explicitly figured out What are the standards? What are the policies that I have in place for my organization for the things that I want to allow? Maybe I have policies for Lewis's favorite topic of what licenses you consider okay or not. (laughs) Um, I can put on my security hat and maybe you have a policy around, you know, I care about what are sort of, are there outstanding security vulnerabilities? Do I care about knowing that the maintainer is pretty active and there are releases But basically starting to put into place these ideas that, hey, this is sort of a set of things that we want to basically checklist for all the software that we're pulling in and making that lightweight and easy and almost seamless for developers have definitely been telling the story of we have a customer and their policy was previously, do you want to add a new JavaScript library? Okay, go to the wiki, see if it's been approved yet. If not, download the Word document template and fill out the six-page Word document and send it back to the lawyer to review. He got back to you in four to six weeks. Like literal, literal conversation that like this was, the customer was like, this is, our, this is our procedure today for bringing new open source into our enterprise. I had a client once who had basically that same process. The Word doc was called the TPS report, third-party software report. And nobody could, we, we could not bring ourselves to ask. I mean, we talked about it in the law firm. We're like, do they know? Do they know what a TPS report is? Have any, are they in on the joke? And, and none of us could bring ourselves to ask, are you all in on the joke about TPS reports or not? <laughs> still don't know. Still wonder to this day. Lewis, I got to ask, did you send them a red stapler? <laughs> I, 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 I look, look law firms don't send people in jokes because this was when i was still at a very large law firm if they'd use the new cover sheet it might not been as bad of a situation but 
Uh, they were still using the old one. So yeah, so that that was the previous way that that customer worked. And now instead what they do is their developers install our command line tool. They can just check and see, am I using anything that hasn't already been approved by running a command, a single command on the command line? If not, they run Tidelift requests. We do all of the analysis that they were having to go off and do all of this research by hand and can present it in a really easy way for sort of their approval team which includes their lawyer, you know, kind of their architect to basically say, approve, deny, and immediately give that back to the developers. And, you know, and some of our customers, to be fair, are a little more sophisticated than that. But they've built their own tooling for this, right? Like our most sophisticated customers have something like this in place, but they don't want to maintain it themselves. They can't match the velocity that, you know, of new features, new, you know, and it's not backed and the information is not backed by the maintainers themselves, right? So we can be useful to you even if you don't have TPS reports. That needs to go on the on the header of your website. <laughs> <laughs> so Brandon and I saved this last question, saved this next question for last. But before we go down this road, I wanted to see if there was anything else you guys wanted to cover. Brandon, if there's anything that we missed. I don't think so. I really appreciate you guys coming on. Like, this has been fantastic. Yeah, we appreciate the chance to, it's been, I think one of the fun things for me in the past four years is watching references to Tidelift grow organically, right? I, mean, I think this happens in a lot of startups, not just open source, right? But where, you know, at first you are like frantically beating the bushes to get your name out there. And then at some point people start talking about you without you having to, you know, I was at the I was at the donut shop a little while ago in my neighborhood, and I was waiting in line for the donuts. And someone says, "Do you work on open source sustainability?" I'm like, yes, yes, I do. <laughs> in fact, I'm one of the co-founders of Tidelift. She's thank you for thank you for what you do. I was like, oh, that's awesome, awesome, Lewis. Only in San Francisco, right? Only in San Francisco. Hey, look, man, I pay this much in well at that time. You know, pay this much in rent. I got to get some boost to my ego out of it, right? Yeah, that's true. I first heard about Tidelift. I think it was twenty eighteen or twenty nineteen, and but there's never been a good way to get money in the hands of the maintainer. There's now today like Patreon and GitHub sponsors but that's great if i'm an individual wanting to give to a maintainer the vast majority of these maintainers are maintaining libraries that enterprises use use and uh, the cio or the cto isn't gonna go to go hunt them down on github to sponsor them right so like this is a fantastic model and i i really appreciate what you guys are doing yeah. I mean, look, I have worked for both very much for profits. I mean, the, my law firm was one of the biggest law firms in the world. And I've worked for very nonprofits, right? Mozilla and, you know, was on the board of the Gnome Foundation. I love nonprofits and where they work, they can be really powerful agents for change. I just, and I'd love to be wrong, right? Like I'd love, for example, for Open Collective to come like roaring out of the gates and you know, really upset this discussion, right? But my my gut at the beginning of this, when we started the company, and nothing I've seen then since then has changed it, is that charity is not going to scale to solve the size of the problem we've got, right? We have tens of thousands of packages developed by tens of thousands of maintainers. And if we just go passing the hat, it doesn't, it's not going to work. We have to show, we have to tie the ask for money to some clear value 
like I said, we got to be very careful about what, like I said, back at the very beginning, right? We've got to try that, tie that value very carefully to making sure it's not adding friction. It's not breaking the things that work. Uh, but if we don't, if you don't have that, it's just not going to, it's not going to scale and we're never going to dig ourselves out of this hole that we find ourselves in, right? And we're going to keep having supply chain. You know, I, we saw an announcement yesterday. I don't want to pick on the specific announcement, so I won't, I, I won't give any details, but it was yet one more, hey, we'll attack supply chain security problems by asking developers to do one more thing, right? And somebody internally who's not as much of an open source expert said, is this going to be controversial? I said, I don't think it's going to be controversial. I think people are just going to ignore it, right? Because it's just one more, it's just one more ask, right? Jeremy asked, uh, Jeremy said at the be- almost at the beginning, oh yeah, if you're a successful open source project, your prize is more GitHub issues. Well, it turns out now it's more get- GitHub issues and 10 new security standards that you're supposed to comply with. Don't forget the complaints on Twitter. Those are really valuable. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, Hacker News is going to tell you how to do your job better than you did. Ne- negative posts about you will be really upvoted. That's what you win. Or worse, your front page news on the Wall Street Journal. Right. Yeah, no, I mean, I feel, you know, the open SSL stuff, right? Like a math teacher in Germany was doing this for fun. Like, it's completely, you know, it's a bonkers way to run a global economy, <laughs> right? Like, I mean, that's a, you know, I mean, that's a thing here, right? Is we don't, there is so much value being created. We don't need to capture a whole lot of it in order to, like, this is not a, this is very much a grow the pie bigger kind of company, right? That we we really think that if we can shift the course of, of this entire industry just a little bit, it makes a huge difference for the people who are involved, right? Because it does not take a whole lot of that money to really put a whole bunch of maintainers in a position where they can maintain, right? As their job, instead of doing some other thing that puts them at the whim of whatever, right? So one of the things that that Pseudo Show always tries to do, we're not always successful, but you know, we try, is we like to leave our audience with a call to action, something that they can do, something more than just move on to the next podcast. How can our audience who may or may not be developers or who may or may not be software engineers for a major enterprise, how can the regular Joe who's listening to this make a difference? Is there a way to get involved with Tidelift? What can Pseudo Show and our audience do to help promote this vision? That's a great one, because I do think actually one of the interesting, I would love to have a rah-rah, you know, join our community kind of thing, but our community is an awful lot enterprises, right? So if, you know, those folks who do work for enterprises, come talk to us. We would love to introduce you to the sales team and and to our maintainers, right? Past that, I I think there's a certain amount. And one of the things that I'm actually hoping, you know, I hope you'll have me on the show again in a year because I'd love to talk a little bit more than one of my goals for 2021 was one of my goals for 2020, but we all know what happened in 2020. I hear. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. You know, is to help build a little bit more of that on-ramp, right? Like how can you be more supportive? Because it's not, it's, this is actually one of the big changes for me in this from rel- like Wikipedia. I can still give you that spiel, right? Mozilla, I can give you that spiel. But it, that's not, you know, for us, it's really tell your friends, tell people who are enterprises, tell tell maintainers, hey, I heard about this thing. It sounds awesome. You should check it out, right? That's that's the call to action, action in some sense. It's just spread the word. If people want to get more of, of the two of you, where uh, where should we send them? 
So, so I am less prolific on Twitter than Lewis. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I was, I was actually reflecting on this uh, the other day while I was on a bike ride. I was like, "How does Lewis have time to send as many tweets as he does?" Uh, <laughs> but I am on Twitter. <laughs> you can follow me. I'm Cats J. That is probably the main place at this point that I kind of hang out. Yeah, someone asked me the other day what my IRC nick is. <laughs> I had to say. I got off IRC when I went to law school because life did not have that many hours in the day. Yeah, I'm Lewis and Beef Brief on Twitter. Old blog posts, sadly, not many new blog posts these days are at lu.is, which is my blog. And thank you to the good people of Iceland for allowing me to impersonate you at a .is domain for all these years. And a fun thing that I'm doing lately, new experiment, but Every Friday at one o'clock Pacific, or hopefully every Friday, one o'clock Pacific, I'm doing small chats on currently on Twitch, twitch.tv slash Tidelift on things like, you know, with just interesting people in the open source movement, trying to talk about things that aren't the software, right? Because the software gets a lot of interest and the stuff around the software, the people, as I was saying earlier, don't always necessarily get the interest they deserve. So we've had the executive director of the Open Source Initiative on. We have one of the leaders of the Rust community on. We are having some researchers who've done anthropological research into open source in an upcoming episode. And we're trying to get that blend of like interesting, fun people. And, you know, we'll talk about tech, but we will also very much talk about the people and the movements and how those all fit together in the modern world, because I think that's super interesting. So yeah, twitch.tv slash Tidelift, or follow the company blog for announcements, or follow me on Twitter. That's awesome. We will, of course, have links to all of those different sites in the show notes. Lewis, is there a, is there a chance that there is a video somewhere of you eating your shorts on stage that uh, that we can we can upvote for you? Oh, thankfully it was not. I've done a lot of dumb things on stage, but that was at a at dinner afterwards. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, pseudo show audience, I I tried. Maybe maybe we can <laughs> maybe we can dig up something else for you. But uh, thank you guys so much for joining us. This this was an awesome conversation. Brandon and I have mentioned Tidelift a few times on the show and. It just it hit me one day. We need to have them on. And so you guys were kind enough to to respond to my cold call tweet. I'm so glad you guys came on. This was this was great. Yeah, a lot of fun. We really appreciate what you're doing for the open source community. Happy to be here. Thank you. Yeah, definitely. We'll have you back on the show again real soon. Thank you so much for joining us today. As always, your feedback is welcome. Send an email to contact at pseudo.show. And if you'd like more of Brandon and I, you can find it over at pseudo.show and on social media at pseudo show podcast. You can catch more awesome content over at our network partners, destinationlinux.network. You can follow Brandon on Twitter at dbrandonjohnson or his website, open-tech.net. You can follow me at ITGuyEric or on ITGuyEric.com. Remember, the Pseudo Show is your place for all things enterprise open source. Until next time.